The following is a sermon by Father Alban McCoy for the third Sunday of Lent, using the story of Jesus' meeting with the Samaritan woman at the well in St John's Gospel. Part of the genius of John's Gospel, for all its theological depth and complexity, is the way he sums up the whole of the Christian message in disarmingly simple stories. Though they differ in detail, each of these touchingly human stories carries the same message. People are saved from whatever weighs them down or holds them back by their encounter with Jesus. The woman taken in adultery, for instance, is saved not only from stoning, but censure. Instead, she finds forgiveness. The helpless cripple is able to walk again and as a consequence is able to care for himself, not only materially, but spiritually. The man born blind is made able to see for the first time and thereby recovers not only his sight, but his faith. And the wedding party at Cana is not only revived by Jesus' intervention, but reaches its cheering climax when water for purification is changed into wine for celebration. But of all these stories, this exquisitely turned account of Jesus' chance meeting at a well with a feisty Samaritan woman is one of the most vivid. At the heart of the story is the breaking down of barriers, the barrier of ignorance, the barrier of religious intolerance, the barrier of racism, the barrier of sexual prejudice and prudishness. But most important of all, the barrier of the past, and in particular, past mistakes. The scene itself speaks volumes. Jesus meets the woman at the well, Jacob's well, in the noonday sun. Now nobody drew water at that time of day, but given her marital status, or lack of it, the woman was doubtless avoiding the disapproval of the village gossips, who like all sensible people came to the well in the cool of the morning or the early evening. The reference Jesus makes to her five husbands and his quip that the man she was living with now wasn't one of them is one of the best examples of our Lord's quick, dry wit and gently ironic humour. I once knew a friar who would reassure the congregation that his sermon was going to be brief by saying, as the woman at the well used to say to her husbands, I won't keep you long. Again, Jesus wasn't helping his own reputation by being alone with her. Even if her domestic arrangements hadn't been so colourful, it would have been considered unacceptable for an unmarried man to be alone with any woman except his close relatives. But even more, no observant Jew would have dreamt of having a conversation, let alone sharing a drinking cup, with a Samaritan woman. To Jews, Samaritans were heretics. In fact, they were worse. They were despised as quislings. In the distant past, they'd collaborated, married and had children with their Assyrian conquerors. But by the time of Jesus, the attitude of Jews to Samaritans was blatantly racist. Samaritans in Jewish eyes could do no right. They had the wrong liturgy, the wrong theology and patently inferior morals. All that wrongness was summed up in their having built a temple in the wrong place. When it came to real estate, even then, evidently, location meant everything, especially where temples were concerned. This whole episode is a wonderful example of Jesus's obvious attraction to and ease with the kind of person supposedly nice people look down on. 
yet another example of how it was and is precisely people in trouble who understood him more easily than the untroubled. The complicated family arrangements of this five times divorced, cohabiting Samaritan woman don't provoke in Jesus' censorious stricture, but humour, albeit gently challenging humour. Unlike the Pharisees then, and all Pharisees, including Christian Pharisees since, Jesus refuses to focus attention exclusively on the tribulations of the flesh, or make them the scapegoat for all our other troubles. The point of this remarkable story, then, is that absolutely nothing stands in the way of our salvation, except not knowing our need of it. That same assurance is given to all of us, whatever our past. This is a wonderfully encouraging story of hope and a reminder that the Christian gospel isn't primarily a moral code. Moral integrity is by definition, of course, integral to our lives. But the only measure of goodness is God himself, who is, of course, love itself. And love, while it certainly creates laws, duties and obligations in our lives, was never itself created by obligation, law or duty. The story also reminds us, and this is especially important to remember during Lent, that the Christian gospel isn't primarily about discipline and detachment, not as conventionally understood at least. Detachment doesn't mean not owning anything, but not being owned by anything, no thing that is. And discipline isn't mere self-restraint imposed from without, but the ordering of our lives in the direction of the good goodness itself that we desire above everything else. Virtue and discipline are not in themselves the same thing. To reduce Christianity to good behaviour is to miss the point. It's much, much more. What the Christian life means primarily is living and being in Christ. And that's not a matter of effort, merit or achievement, but sheer gift. It means living with the life he shares with us, his life, seeing, speaking, loving as he did and does. St Paul expresses it perfectly. I live, he says, now not I, but Christ lives in me. And what does that look like in practice? An old friend's prayer found after his death in a battered missile he kept with him throughout the whole of the Second World War answers that question perfectly. Lord, he wrote, so act in me that all I do is done also by thee. For me to live is Christ, says St Paul. That is where we find ultimate meaning, where everything in our lives comes together, little things and great things, suffering and consolation, the altar and the kitchen, life and death. That is the heart of Christian existence. Thank you.